So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn there today. Psalm 34. And I'm going to read verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 10. I just want to say, uh, my sister and my mum here here today, up the back here. Uh, great to have them. And uh, it's great to have Sam's parents here and Caitlin's mum over here. Her dad's still coming. And we hope. <laughs> okay, Psalm 34, verse 1. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you, you want to say something? Or? No, no, you're just there. <laughs> he had the pose like, I'm taking over. <laughs> okay. Now, um, I, I, you know, the last few weeks for us as a church, you know, we've got all our visitors and Beach Mission and Impact Summer and all that, and we love all those guys and so appreciate it. But we want to hear the mind of God as a church too for the next period of time. At the end of this month, on the uh, 27th of January, uh, many of us in the church do a time of 21 days of prayer and fasting. Laurie Hart is going to do a complete fast for 21 days, water only. And so, um, and so there's a few of us uh, that get involved in that. And, and, uh, and honestly, some, I remember Jit the first year he did, he, he went without media. Uh, he went without touching a computer for 21 days and it nearly killed him. And because it nearly killed him, he decided he'd go without food the next year. And he did it. And, uh, uh, sorry? Oh, he went without meat. That's right, the second year. And then he's getting better. He's really going hardcore. So here he is. <laughs> so um, with this there, we wanted to um, also uh, work up to that and, um, and up until... Uh, Easter time. And so um, we wanted to uh, do a thing to connect it with both uh, facilities. Um, uh, that's Byron Facility and Billy Nudgel. And we're just, because uh, no one could think of a better title, I want to do one big theme, the motions of devotion. The motions of devotion. And in Eastgate here particularly, we're going to look at one theme over the next period of time, which is the theme of worship. Just the one thing we're going to look at here. And then in Billy Nudgel, I'm going to rework a series I did here in 2006. We're going to do up there called uh, Clouds of Incense. So at, here in this facility on the, on the Sunday mornings, we're going to turn our attention to worship, which I personally, personally believe is the highest calling that a saint of God can be actually called to. And at least our church fathers, the Westminster Short Confession, agreed with that. And it said, what is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, that's what our church fathers said. But um, if, as soon as I mention worship, worship, even for some people this morning that may be in the building, is there's a manifold of, of opinions with that. Um, those that have been in the Islamic world and you've been to a mosque and you observe Muslims at worship, the guys that go to Calcutta and you observe Hindus at worship, um, uh, if you go and observe the Sikh community at worship. Um, there's all these different opinions and expressions of this, and particularly in Western society as well. And so for many people in Western society, they just go, well, I don't have time for worship. And so um, it's not a part of their worldview. Uh, they don't really relate to it or connect to it. Uh, I hope at the end of this series we'll see really good reasons why we need to connect to that. Um, a lot of people go, well, what's the point? What's the whole point with worship? Uh, you know, is um, some people just like being pragmatic, practical people. I remember a guy um, when I was sharing the gospel with him uh, in his... As he first explored Christianity, there was only one book of the Bible he related to, the book of Proverbs, because it was so practical, and he liked practical matters. And for him, worship wasn't on the radar, and he was a practical person. I've heard other people say, well, what's the big point? Is God some big, massive ego tripper that we've got to flatter his personality? Um, you know, Richard Dawkins, the likes of some of the new atheists, have this opinion. For other people, it's, uh, you know, they're not fanatic types. And um, they come into a church uh, like this, or <laughs> I, I won't say, but some other places, and they go, man, this is too over the top. I can't quite handle this. Um, uh, it's, uh, anyway, uh, I think you're aware of some of those things. Uh, for some people, singing songs does nothing for them. And particularly uh, as you listen to their eloquence, probably their eloquence we can do without. That's their opinion. Uh, so they don't relate to that. And for some people, they just couldn't think of anything more boring than sitting on a, with a harp on a cloud, a white cloud for eternity. Five minutes of that, dear God, get me out of there. Uh, I always find it interesting. The same people can get absolutely entertained by television for hour after hour after hour after hour. And I'll suggest to you there is something greater uh, in worship than anything television might possibly produce. But anyway, we'll, we'll explore some of these things. Now, one of the first things I want to do, if I can, um, is what is meant even by worship. Now, Denise gave a, a very short definition of worship uh, is a physical response that uh, affects the spiritual and physical dimension. Uh, that's good, but um, uh, and I agree with that. But when we come to the Scripture, there are no how-tos in the Bible of worship. You won't read any. Uh, the only thing is on apprehending God. Uh, so there's no how-tos. We come, in actual fact, in Scripture, there's no definitions. I can't think of any definition I know of that goes, this is the definition of worship in Scripture. Uh, uh, there's certainly no methodologies, uh, uh, styles or single approaches. There's none of that. Um, is we have basically uh, different people doing different things. Uh, it's very interesting. We have a book of a legacy of songs, the book of Psalms, where we're going to be a lot in this series. 150 songs... Now, I read a psalm today, but you can't read a psalm. It should be sung. And so, but there's no score chart. 
That's not there. That's for Becca to write here. There's <laughs> uh, is, is no score charts. And uh, so we're just left with the words of legacy of songs. Um, uh, no recommended instruments or arrangements. I, I know of one particular domination. They won't allow any musical instruments in church because there's no mention of them in the New Testament. And that's partly true. And so because of that, they say there should be no musical instruments in church. And to be fair, I think some of those people still worship God. Um, and, uh, but they have a very firm line on what they think is appropriate and not appropriate. Uh, so before we look at all of that, um, I want to uh, just come and I want to begin to talk about worship. Uh, and how in a world that can have relevance to our lives. Now... Uh, psalms, and I read from a psalm, were accompanied by musical instruments, strings. Uh, you realise a piano is strings, except one of those up there, it's uh, an electronic thing. Um, but over, overall, on the subject of worship, with all of those opinions, no one style, no definitions, I want to say this, there are some things that we can get right and wrong in our lives, that have... Tremendous consequences in our world. But there's nothing that will have a deeper consequence to your life and your world and the legacy you leave than your response to worship. If you get worship wrong, if you get it wrong, there is tremendous consequences to getting it wrong. If we get it right... There is also tremendous consequences for getting worship right. It, it, it actually has the power to affect generations. And uh, this is something that really begins in the beginning of Scripture that goes right through to the end of Scripture. Uh, you know, right in the beginning, the first story in the Bible after the first man and woman and their demise is the story of worship. And it actually says in Genesis 4, 4 and 5, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That's of worship. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, I want to just say and start off this way, that there's worship that God himself has no regard for. The people are sincere. They're very diligent. But God has no regard for it. And there are others... Uh, who may be flawed and who may be uh, uh, awkward in their approach to God, but yet God holds it very, very highly. And uh, Cain was a man who got worship wrong. And in getting worship wrong, it led to lying, it led to deceit, and it led to murder. And it led to a legacy that outflowed in generations that flowed from him that eventually his great-great-grandson, a man called Lamech, will stand and boast, a boy gave me cheek and I struck him dead. So callous did that man and those generations become. You know, that theme will run all the way through Scripture, right through the whole Bible, till you end up in a book called the Book of Revelation. And we're also going to spend a lot of time in the Book of Revelation in this series and in the book of Revelation, you're going to find that finally uh, there's going to be a group of people who worship the beast and the dragon. And they get worship wrong. 
And so from beginning to the end of Scripture is going to be a story of people who got worship wrong. You know, Abel, we are told, got worship right. And in getting it right, he uh, became a shepherd, we are told. And with that, he actually became the first martyr. Now, if that was a Greek, if we were reading a Greek version of the Old Testament, it would be he became the first witness. The first witness. And that will unpack all the way through Scripture, following people who got worship wrong and people who got it right, till you end up in the book of Revelation, where people will worship God on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the journey is, in fact, a journey of worship. And so this is actually really the story of our Scripture. Now, maybe if I can maybe uh, come here with uh, an illustration, uh, uh, just in point. You know, today I read a song from King David. David had a son called Solomon, who was king. Now, if you read Scripture, if if you're honest to the Bible, uh, both men... Uh, became incredibly influential men. Uh, David probably uh, would still to this day be one of the most influential men of history. Now, with David and his son Solomon, David was a man who made tremendous mistakes in life. In fact, David probably wouldn't be the ideal candidate for church leadership, uh, if we're really honest. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And in committing murder, he led to a whole death of a whole pile of innocence. At one time in his life, he became proud and boastful and began to boast in his statistics and numbers. Um, He made some tremendous mistakes in life. But David always got one thing right. He got worship right. That was the one thing he managed to get right in his life. We come to Solomon. Solomon is actually classed as the wisest man in history. And uh, incredible wisdom. He was the one who wrote the book of Proverbs that my friend, who was one of those pragmatic people and couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't relate to anything on a spiritual nature, but he loved practice. And so he loved the book of Proverbs. And he was the author of that book of Proverbs. But unfortunately, Solomon got one thing horribly wrong in his life, was worship. And if you were really honest and you put Solomon and you put David side by side and you were judging by current world standards, you would probably say David did the worst mistakes in life. You'd probably say Solomon was the one who probably did the least mistakes. But there was one thing Solomon got wrong, was worship. Now, when you come to track his record, the wisest man in the Bible, we are told, had 700 wives. Can I just say, that means he had 700 mother-in-laws. Now, friend, that is hell. And so, uh, no, no offence, I've got one. Is she here today? She just walked out. <laughs> no, I've got a good one. Uh, but I, I, I think if you have 700, the odds of getting 700 good ones are pretty, pretty slight. Now, he also had 300 concubines, which means he had 300 women who weren't wives, which means there were 300 women who had mothers who weren't mother-in-laws, and they took off because they're not mother-in-laws, so it's worse than angry mother-in-laws. You got the opinion? So he wasn't 
In some ways he was smart, but mad he was dumb. Okay? And so it says, And his wives turned his heart away from God. And it says, For his heart was not wholly, truly devoted to the Lord his God, and as his heart of his father David was. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And we're told that story. And the tragedy with Solomon, as he gets worship, the one thing he really got wrong in his life, worship, it lost the kingdom. It destroyed his posterity that flowed from his life. You know, in getting that one thing wrong, he made the greatest error you could ever make in your life. David, on the other hand, after that moment when he'd committed adultery, he'd been exposed for being the murderer he was, his son of that infamous liaison led to a pregnancy, and the child grew sick and went to die. And everyone was despairing because David was despairing and agonizing because he knew it should be him that dies. And that child who was innocent was dying in his place. And David, we are told in 2 Samuel 12, 19-20, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, the child had died. They whispered that the child was dead. David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes... And he went into the house of the Lord and he, what? Worshipped. You know, at the lowest moment in his life, at the very biggest mistake you could say he ever committed, and can I just suggest if I'd made that mistake David had, you would no longer have a pastor. (laughs) I mean, it was one massive, massive mistake And even in the worst of mistakes in exposure, at that lowest moment, David brings himself right back in before God and he just worships God. And you know, we're told this, that David, with all the flaws and failures in his life, he would establish the kingdom and that posterity that he left affected generation after generation after generation. Simply through worship. Now, that there, I think, uh, illustrates uh, quite a bit about where I want to get to today. You see, it's why I believe that David's life, as flawed and as uh, 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 and marked as it was, we're actually told in the book of Acts, Acts thirteen twenty-two, and when uh, God had removed Saul from being king. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I've sought, found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Now, I want you to think about that. A man after God's heart. You know, I think if there was a legacy, you know, and it's your funeral day, and, and uh, if someone gets up and testifies, I think one of the greatest notes of flattery Whatever to be here, he was a man who had a heart after God. Uh, because he gets worship right. Now, this leads us to Psalms. Because David was the author of half, over half the Psalms we know, actually, that drew from his pen. There may have been many others, but we know at least half 
uh, those 150 psalms were written by him. Now today I read from Psalm 34. Now if you are a, a careful listener, you'll notice with this psalm, it doesn't flow in a, in a nice unfolding way, because it's not written that way. The way it's written is known as an alphabetic psalm. Let me explain it. There is 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and uh, you've got Aleph, Beth, Gimel, uh, these other Hebrew letters. Now, what happens, this psalm unpacks, and you will notice there are 22 verses in the psalm, is because the first letter is like A stands for. And that A then unpacks of what that stands for. B, or, or in, um, in the uh, Hebrew language, Beth, um, it, this stands for. And then the next verse. And so as you read this psalm, uh, there are several psalms written this way. Uh, psalm 25, uh, the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. And if you have insomnia like Sue, you get that out and you try and read that before you go to bed. Okay? It's because the longest psalm. And the way it reads is it reads and unpacks in groups of 22. Because it just goes, uh, Aleph. In Hebrew, A in English stands for. And then it unpacks that. Now, when you come across an alphabetic psalm uh, in this way, uh, you know two things straight away. You know, firstly, it was actually written and sung, because it should be sung, in a way that people could instantly memorize what was coming next. So Aleph, A, and you would sing what A stands for. Beth, or B, you would sing Gimel, or C, uh, and you would sing it through as you would sing this. And so each of the verses, in a way, a little disconnected as you do a, a reading, yet they are all connected because it's written in this particular way. And if you've got an English version, you can't see this. It's because a translator cannot communicate what's there in the original. But that's, that's how it is. Now, with this here, the psalm works in two halves. It works in a half that does the first ten verses. And those verses are a song unto the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And if you're a Bible student, you know that is the particular word for God in covenant with his people. Yahweh is the word. And then the second half of the psalm, verses 11 to 22, uh, those last 12 verses, are a sermon to those who will listen. And it just unpacks A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, etc. right through to Z, if we were going by English, but in Hebrew is 22 letters. Everyone got the how this works. Now, that is important for us, and I'm not saying that just to entertain you uh, with trivia. Uh, is because it becomes extremely important as we develop what I want to say here this morning. Now, the psalm has an introduction. Many of the psalms do, and it's a song. Uh, you want to hear this psalm, you would experience it in song. That is how it was written. And so the introduction says of David, of King David, this very king I've talked about, uh, when he changed his behavior before a king called Abimelech. Abimelech. I'll come to him just in a moment. So that he drove him out and he went away. So with this psalm, we know there's a historical background behind it, and it comes from the historical book, 1 Samuel, chapters 21 and verses 10 through to verse 22. And so we know this is the history that sits behind this particular song. Now, let me just explain a little bit about this history. This was uh, 
a reflection. Now, I wanted to say another second thing on an alphabetic song. It helps your memory. But the second thing you must understand with an alphabetical song is it's been really, really thought through before it was written. Everyone heard what I just said. So it's not flowed out of a moment of passion. It's flown out of deep thought, deep meditation, and deep response to God. And so this psalm, uh, as David writes this, is reflecting on a historical moment of his life. One of his most infamous moments in history, uh, Bathsheba was bad, but this one, this one before the world was probably one of his worst moments in life. And David reflects back is because the king that he was under was King Saul. And King Saul, as David had his euphoric moment of bringing down Goliath, and I'm sure you might have heard David and Goliath. And David comes through that moment and Saul brings him into his army, makes him commander of his army. And David is in this suddenly elevated from shepherd boy to over all the armies of Israel. Uh, that's sort of like a rag to riches story, uh, if I can maybe put it that way. And so what happens there, uh, Saul would have bad moments, King Saul, bad moments of bad mood. And David would play the harp. He was a musician. And hence why we have a book of Psalms, because of his musical prowess. And what happened, one day David was playing for him, and Saul, in a fit of rage, suddenly threw and hurled a spear and just missed David. And David just went like that and the spear went into the door. And David thought, hmm, bad day. Uh, maybe, you know, is, uh, uh, things have got the better of a soul today. But then it happened twice. And David began to get the intuition that Saul had suddenly become extremely jealous and angry of him and sought to actually take him down, to kill him. And that intensified, and it intensified, and intensified. And to the point where David is going to flee Saul. Firstly, he goes to the worshipping company of people where Samuel was, and then he'll go to uh, his covenant partner, which was Jonathan, the son of Saul, and each time he'll be saved. But David will write a psalm also at that terrible moment, as he began to dawn on him that Saul was trying to kill him. And uh, here we are told in 1 Samuel 21, where I want to just give you a little bit of history, it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, with this here, uh, David wrote these words of this psalm. I want to read them to you. Because can I just say, we can sing songs. We can know the theology. But sometimes... One of the hardest things is to get theology from here to here. There's a, there's a big gap. And uh, David says this in this psalm, In the Lord I take refuge. This is Psalm 11, verses 1 to 3. How can you say to my soul, because everyone was saying to David, you need to flee. You need to flee for the safety of your life. And, and he says, How can you say, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, David wrote those words, and it was a beautiful psalm. But can I just say, and it's meant to be sung as well, but it's one thing to say theology, but when someone aims the arrow at you, and all hell breaks loose over your life, 
It's sometimes very difficult to live the theology. And so David had said this, but when push came to shove and Saul went to actually kill him, he fled to his mountain like a bird fleeing for his life. And the whole foundations of his faith began to shake. Now, can I just say, there's people in this room, you look around the room and you go, oh, you know, there's people and they get up like Jesse and, you know, musicians and, and you know, you just look on them the exterior. But the reality is most people in this room have had moments in their life where their world shakes, where everything within them goes, I need to flee to my mountain of refuge because things have got too intense in my life. There are people in this room who've got loved ones and it's like all hell has broken out over them and they go, their, their hearts are in anguish over that. There are people that are challenged financially. There are people that have been challenged in health issues. There are people... If I pull the veneer off behind most of you here in this room, man, you're walking problems. We're really honest. And there is massive issues that people have had to work through in this room. Now, there is moments in all our life where our foundations shake. And we can say all the right theology, we can get everything right. And what happens, we flee to our mountain when we're really running on instinct and survival mode and we forget God, we forget worship, we forget the presence of the Lord, we forget his people and we go into survival mode. Uh, that's probably a terrible question. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> Nearly everyone in this room has been there and the reality there is there are times massive challenges come into our life. Now David fled and he fled Saul and he began to run on instinct he began to run on survival measure he forgot everything of God he forgot everything of the Psalms that he'd written if he got Psalm 11 1 to 3 his whole foundations of his world began to shake when he realized that Saul was like a ravaging lion wanting to rip him to pieces and he came to that understanding and he just flees now his plan a his plan A of survival, his plan A of self-preservation and instinct is to run to Gath. Now, that might mean much to you, but that is Philistine town. Uh, if you're a little bit more attentive, uh, you might remember it's someone's hometown by the name of Goliath. It's his hometown. Now, David's world begins to shake and he goes to pieces. Now, I did a series quite some time back here in the church on the life of David. We've actually looked right through. I want to do a quick summary just at the moment. But just here, theme screams to David to flee as a bird to his mountain. When he's threatened by circumstances, his whole world of faith is shaken. And finally, he succumbs to self-preservation in his base instincts. Now, and when we did our series on David... I talked this story through and I, I did this in a message called The Dungeons of Gath. If you want to go to the library sometime, The Dungeon of Gath. It's the story of 1 Samuel 21, which is the story behind this psalm. Everyone got the picture. Now, David did some things, five steps, that led him into the greatest moment of folly in his life. And he, as he thinks back on this... Uh, he remembers this moment. Let me just explain what happened. David took his eyes off God. 
Now, a lot of other people did that. You remember as uh, uh, Peter, if that's you, Lord, command me to come on the water. <laughs> you remember that? Oh, Jesus goes, oh, Peter, come, come. And you remember he gets out of the boat. Now, I'm a surfer, and there's one way you get out if you've got a board, but if you've got no board, there's another way you get out of a boat. But Peter gets out of that boat. Now, I don't know how far he got. He got some distance. It's because he, none of the other disciples did. He got out of that boat, and, and you've got to understand in that story, it says, well, he kept his eyes on Jesus. He was doing fine. And then he saw the wind and the waves. Do you remember the story? He takes his eyes off that. And the Bible doesn't say he sank. Peter could swim really good. I knew he could walk really well because he walks all over the place in the New Testament. But the Bible doesn't say either that either. It says, and beginning to sink, he ain't sunk and he ain't a walking. He ain't a swimming, he ain't a walking. And if you ain't a swimming and you ain't a walking and you're halfway in between, you're a squawking. And that's exactly what he did. And he began to squawk as he saw everything around him. And you remember Jesus walks up to him and goes, Peter, Peter, come on, man. And, and he picks him up and he draws the, the attention back to him. Do you remember that? And, and then, you know, Jesus lifts him up and they get back to the boat and, and the rest is history. Now, can I just say, David did exactly the same thing. He flees as a fugitive under his circumstances. Now, it's a little bit opposite to our key verse today, which is going to be verse 5 of Psalm 34, which says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. <laughs> now, David took his eyes off God, and he was darkened, and it led to the greatest shame of his life. Okay, everyone got the picture. So this led to the next step, and his next step was he compromised his walk with lies, uh, it's amazing. Uh, even the most godly of people will compromise themselves with lies. <laughs> Push come to shove. Uh, you all think you're all saints here? Uh, you know, I thought I was one. And I remember one friend of mine, he gave me a DVD. No, I wasn't really interested in it. And he came back two months later and he said, you got the DVD? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, what do you think of it? And I was halfway through telling my lie because I never watched it. Halfway through, tell them my lie. Good saintly... This is your pastor, some of you guys in this church. Uh, halfway through, tell them a lie. And the Holy Spirit goes, come on, man. You're lying through your teeth. Come on, you saints. Have anyone here in this room had that experience? No, no, just me. Okay. And, and David lies. He deceives. Because he, he's into survival mode. And so First uh, Samuel 21, 1 and 2 tell that story. And then he has plan A. Oh, before he even gets there, he begins to go for the world's methods. Now, he goes to the tabernacle as he's fleeing and lying and deceiving, and he, he needs some defense. And, and, and the high priest goes, oh, there's no weapon here except Goliath's sword. <laughs> and David goes, give it to me. <laughs> there's none like it. Now, I want you to think about that. Do you remember when David and, and Goliath had their little altercation back in 1 Samuel 17? Is what happens is, is, is Goliath was armed like an Apache helicopter and, and he comes in, yeah, nine foot six tall. That's tall. That's even tall by NFL standards. You, you're talking tall. And so uh, David, you know, he's a shepherd boy and you remember the story, you know, took a sling and he took his five stones and he runs out there and you, he says this, you come to me with spear, javelin and sword. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And you remember he puts his little stone, which was actually a little bit bigger than little. It was about the size of an orange. He puts it in his sling and he goes, give me a J. Whoa. <laughs> he doesn't get to the ESUS. And that stone, whoop, boop. And you remember, you know the story in Goliath. Ooh. And, and, you know, Goliath falls. And, and so you know the story. Now, with that there, as what happens is Goliath's sword did not do him much good, did it? In actual fact, it led to the Goliath's head being chopped off by David. He used his own sword to behead him. Everyone got the picture? So David says, give me the sword. (laughs) Because when you're in survival and instinct mode, when you're running with self-preservation, your great best of plans, oh, give me Goliath's sword. (laughs) That'll get me out of here. Are you okay today? Okay. And, um, And so... I'm doing all right. I don't know about you, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> and his plan A is to flee for refuge in the city of Gath. What a great plan, David. Plan A. This is going to get you away from Saul, from the ravaging lion. So you're going to run to Gath, towing Goliath's sword on your side. You walk into town looking incognito and, and you know, just playing the undercover as if you, no one knows you. Goliath's widow lives in that town. <laughs> you know, it says this, Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands. Most of those Philistines were those tens of thousands from Gath. Now you come into town, your plan A of your best way of survival is Gath? <laughs> oh, friend, I tell you, you ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. You ain't a thinking. Is that okay? You got me? So what happens? He comes... He comes into Gath, and guess what happens? First person sees Goliath's sword dragging on his side, and they say in, in 1 Samuel 21 11, and the servants of Kish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances, uh, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and most of those ten thousands are us. <laughs> Here he is. <laughs> and guess what they do? They do what any good Philistine would do. They take him captive and they bring him to the king's castle. And David ends up on death row in the dungeon of Gath. Now, can I just say, that is like going out of the frying pan into the fire. You couldn't get much worse. In other words, every conniving, scheming, self-preservation of David just leads him into one-way trip down. And it's going to be a certain trip, another six foot deeper, if the way things are going. So guess what he does? This moment in history is David, the king of righteousness, pretends he is mad. He pretends he's insane. He begins to scribble on the gates. He begins to uh, let his saliva run down like he's, he's, he's lost it in the head. And the king of Gath looks at him. And this absolute man is a madman who was meant to be the great victor of Israel, who's playing the world's fool, and he believes him. And he goes, he says this, oh, listen to what he says. He goes, then Akish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And they let him go. David survived. <laughs> Honky dory, the plan worked. The ends justify the means. Yeah. <laughs> the ends justify the means? Uh, no, 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 friends. 
because David writes Psalm 34 and he thinks back at this little blemish in his life and he thinks back to when he played the world's fool and he got away he survived but David says no no friends he says I thought it was a good plan then but it was really stupid it was really really stupid and if it hadn't been for God I should have been six foot down now everyone got the picture and as he thinks back on this he writes Psalm 34 now I can see I've got a problem with time and we'll see what we can do so let me summarize this quickly so verse 1 I'll bless the Lord I'll bless the Lord at all times <laughs> none of my plans I thought they maybe work at the time uh, his praise shall continually be in my mouth Aleph let's get to Beth Hebrew uh, well bless here can mean to salute kneel give full acknowledgement he is going to give only one one person acknowledgement for his deliverance and that is God himself he then says this my soul makes its boast in the Lord let the humble hear and be glad I'm going to let you know that it was only the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, his covenant Lord. God is faithful to the covenant. David was not. David got delivered because God was true to what he always said. And so he writes this psalm. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. It means like to braid in a rope, to strengthen. Uh, we're going to braid together to make God's name great. And David says, come on, braid with me. We're going to magnify God. We're going to come back to that word a few times in this series. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Magnify. Now, we come to our key verse, which is 35 verse 4. And it says there, uh, 34 verse 5. Thank you, Sue. Those who look to him. Listen to this. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, most theologians think he's thinking about Moses as he gazed on the glory of God at Mount Sinai. And if you remember the story, Moses' face, as he gazed on the glory of God, his face began to shine. Yep. Uh, maybe a good connection. But I want to say, I think David's referring to something even deeper. His whole plan had led to him acting a complete imbecile and madman. It led to the greatest shameful moment in his life. And he says, I'd turned away from God and I am going to come and I'm going to look to him I'm going to look to him and then my face will be radiant and I'll never ever be ashamed when I get worship right you got what I'm saying when he comes to gaze upon God for who God is he will never ever be ashamed his face will be radiant he'll look to him look to you and never be ashamed david in his unbelief had played the fool before all the world but when we look to him there is no shame and so this leads us to worship you see what is worship friends forget all the methodology forget all the other things and i'm never going to be able to define worship the only thing i can say to you is worship is when you look to him when you look to him for him, for who he is, and you look to him, and you look with that knowing of who God is, then suddenly all your problems begin to go a little more in resolution. You know, recently, Haley, 
Hayley, uh, we probably shouldn't have done it, but I read her The Hobbit. She liked The Hobbit, so we took her to all the movies. She's only 11. She likes all those movies, and I know some of you don't, but Haley's into it. So I took her to see The Hobbit there just between Christmas and New Year. It's what I did instead of being down with YWAM one night. And so I, here Haley and I were watching in The Hobbit. Sue was there too, because she likes it too. But there's one scene in The Hobbit that I just loved, the latest movie, which is the third movie in the series. There's a character, and I'm sure you're familiar with him, called uh, Bard the Dragon Slayer. And there's this moment where the dwarves have got to the mountain and the dragon is mad. And he is so stirred up and he comes down because of the people that hosted those dwarves. And he goes just to consume and destroy everything before his path. And he's enraged. And he can breathe fire, good fire. And he just goes through and he destroys whole sections of the city. He kills people. He pulls down towers. And he is enraged. And in the midst of all the mayhem, there's one man there called Bard. He's actually in a prison cell. And the dragon breaks his prison cell open. He runs out and he runs for his bow because he's going to take the dragon on. And as he runs to take the dragon on and he takes his bow, he takes three glances and they just whoof, off the dragon. Nothing can touch the dragon because the only thing that can take a dragon down is a special iron arrow. And there's one little vulnerable point in that dragon. And what happens, the dragon suddenly realizes someone's trying to oppose his wrath. And he looks at this man, Bard, and you can see the dragon and all its wrath and fury is just moving in to kill him and take him out. And right at that moment, as Bard is, is there trying to hold the ground, his bow breaks. So now he hasn't even got a bow. And right at that moment, his son runs up and he gives him the iron arrow, the only arrow that can bring that dragon down that had been hidden. And as he comes and hands the arrow, his bard throws the bow round a sort of a pillar and he rests his arrow on his son's shoulders and he takes aim at the dragon. And the dragon laughs and it goes, oh! <laughs> and it comes in, I'm going to make you mincemeat. And the little son has got his back to the dragon. He's got his back to the dragon. His legs are shaking. He's fearful. And the dragon's moving in and roaring. And it's just about to breathe its fire. And right at that moment, everything within him wants to turn around and look at the dragon. And right at that moment, Bard says, Son, look at me. Look at me. And his son goes to turn around and look at the dragon. And he says, No, son. No, son. Look at me. And his son holds the ground and he allows and just looks at his father's face and Bard takes aim and that dragon pierces that monster and then in good Hollywood uh, 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 style, it rises in the sky and falls down dead. And Haley goes, yeah, dad, yeah, dad. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. <laughs> I know I'm leading my daughter astray. My friends, when we look to him, when we look to him, you see, you want to do spiritual warfare? Don't you look at the dragon. You have things coming against you in life? Don't you look at the dragon. Everything in you wants to turn and then you'll move in instinct. Everything will want to turn and you will flee for your plan A to rescue your life. Don't look at the dragon. You've got to hold your ground and you look to him.
Now, Psalm 34, 6 and 7, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles, the angel of the Lord. Oh, now it's all wonderful theology. You know, the poor man cried. He, he wasn't up there for hours and hours. We're going to do a series on prayer. But can I just tell you, hours and hours of prayer are not going to change a thing. You might be shocked me saying that. David says here, the poor man cried. <laughs> he didn't get hours and hours of prayer. It was, help! Slightly paraphrased, but... Um, you got the picture? And, and, and then he goes, the angel of the Lord, the one of covenant, rescued him. David was absolutely unfaithful, but God was totally faithful. It's got nothing to do with your deliverance. What you need to do is turn and look to him. Now, with this here, their eyes, they'll lift him and be radiant. Then it goes, oh, taste and see. Now, now... I'm shot of time. I hate this. Oh, ta taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> I, I wanted to spend a bit of time here. I like this. Because taste, li listen to it. Taste, taste is experience. I can't teach you worship. You've got to experience worship. Oh, taste and see. You know, I was in Russia and a Russian came to me and he says, Neville, Neville, in Siberia after Perestroika, he says, how do you eat tropical fruit? And I said, tell me about tropical fruit. And he said, I went into a store in Moscow. There was a mango and an avocado. And he went, eeny, meeny, miny, moo. Because I want to try tropical fruit for the first time ever from a boy from Siberia's life. And he picks the avocado. And he picks the avocado up. He takes it out of the store. I got my tropical fruit. I got my tropical fruit. He goes out and he goes, <laughs> He says, that was the most horrible fruit I ever wrote, Neville. How do you like tropical fruit? And I said, Sergei, Sergei, you should have chosen the mango. <laughs> you should have chosen, because you've got to experience it. I can't teach you that. You've got to experience it. Now, you know, come on, Nikki and Paul fell in love together, came to my surf group. And then, can I, can I just say, let, let's get clinical about this. There's a moment in his life where they had their first kiss. Now, Nicky, you've been waiting for that. But you know what a kiss is? You know what a kiss is? The exchange of saliva, microflora and fauna, all the germs in your mouth, the sensation on your lips. That's what a kiss is. But that moment when they first kissed, oh, I'm in heaven. Because I know I had my first kiss and I know what that was like. I went home, I didn't sleep the whole night. <laughs> oh, I mean, because you experience it. You don't, you don't theologize or scrutinize. This is what atheists struggle with. They can't understand worship at all because they wanted to reduce everything to reason. Good Dr. Spock reason. And it will always fail you, friends. You've got to experience God. You've got to walk in there and look to Him. Look upon Him for who He is. And when you look upon Him, it's beyond exchange of microflora and flora, fauna. It is experience. And you feel your heart bust out of your chest and you ride on cloud nine and you go, I am in heaven. All right? All right. Anyway, anyway, we're nearly done. We're nearly done. Uh, so true worship all words will fail. In true worship, true worship, all definitions will elude me. In true worship, all theological terms are inadequate. I can't teach worship. 
You've got to taste it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Choose the mango. <laughs> oh, dear. Those, let me read it from the NLT. But it, I, it's good and it's not good. Let me read it. The NLT says, those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. <sighs> sort of good, but not good. Let me give it as it should be. Those who look to him for him, they will be radiant. And no shadow or shame will darken their faces. Because I've got to get one thing right. It's worship. Worship is the key to overcoming in spiritual warfare. Don't look at the dragon. <laughs> look to me. Bard the dragon slayer. Oh, fear the Lord. We haven't got time. But you know the devil's like a ravaging lion. We're out of time. But let me end this way. Saul and Silas. <laughs> they go on a ministry trip to Calcutta. <laughs> They've been trained up through YWAM. Hunky Dory, this is their big opportunity, their first missionary trip. Off we go. Hunter and Carly, here's your moment of time. So off they go. They come into a town and man alive. They cast out a demon. Be careful of that. <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. They are arrested, they're thrown in jail. They're beaten with rods, which nearly kills you. They're put in the lowest dungeon that you could possibly put within. And then in that moment, in Acts 16, 25 to 26, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs of that, or hymns to him. Songs to him. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Listen to that. Because when you get worship right, when you look to him, your bonds are unfastened and the prison doors are open. There is liberty for people. Don't look at the dragon. Don't look at all the things coming against you. Don't look at your problems, those loved ones around you. You look to him. And so that's where we're going in this series. And so we're going to be unpacking this as we move forward. It's because we've got to get worship right. Look to you. And so let me end this way. I end here, and I'm really ending. Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all of his bones, none of them are broken. Verse 20. It's because this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is quoted in John 19, 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones were broken. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. And on the cross, the devil and all of hell came against him and sought to put him in a dungeon of gas so, so deep that they believed he had never come out. And you know, Jesus Christ, as he surrendered his life, he looked up to God and he said, it is finished. Because he looked to him. And you know, they will be radiant. And Jesus rose from that grave and forever defeated the enemy. And so we end Hebrews 12 2. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him went to the cross for you, for you, for you. 
And crying out with a loud voice, Revelation 7 says, 10. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne unto the Lamb. Amen. Let's sing. Let's stand. Let's worship.